Let's just continue in prayer. That song is such a powerful song. Father, we come before you and before we um, take time to just hear your word and the things you've placed on my heart to be able to share, I just let's invite people, God, wherever they're at. I mean, it is so true. We can be lost and undone, be broken and confused. And what's so wonderful is that you ask us to come that way before you're vulnerable, just as we are. So I just invite you just to open your heart right now to God and say, God, speak to my heart. Help me to hear you. Move in my heart and thank you for moving in this place. It's so true, God, when we just think about matters of the heart, we are just so dependent on you. None of us has our act together around that because it's so easy for our hearts to stray. It's so easy for our hearts to get infected. It's so easy for our hearts to become dull. It's so easy for our hearts to be broken. But we want your heart in our heart reviving us to be your people. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, I... um, I've been kind of enjoying this series, and, and I'm glad that, uh, that you have been along for the ride, because it's one of those kind of things as a pastor, you kind of go, wow, I don't know what others are going to think, but this has been really good for my own heart and soul. Um, I saw this, uh, in fact, my, my youngest daughter sent me this this week about uh, questions, and it was a group of young kids who were asked how to decide who to marry. And I thought it was very interesting, because they asked these, uh, a number of questions, and Kids always have an interesting perspective on these kind of things. For instance, um, this whole idea of who to marry, Alan, age 10, really has an interesting perspective. He says, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, and she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Not sure how long Alan's going to be married. Um, <clears throat> Kristen Age 10 answers, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. Um, <laughs> not sure of Kristen's theology. Or to the question, what do most people do on a date? Lynette, age 9, says, dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. <laughs> wise, wise woman. Um, Martin, age 10. On the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. Now, what should you do on a first date when it begins to turn sour? This is a good one for some of you who are in that dating phase. What should you do when it turns sour? Craig, age 9, gives a great answer. He said, I'd run home and play dead. The next day, I would call all the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. So, you know, just to ensure. And then to this question, how would you make a marriage work, which is a classic answer. Ricky, age 10, tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. Um, Well, now we know why 50% of the marriages end in divorce. Um... Those are interesting questions. Um, 
But it is really true that one of the things that when we look at these whole idea of marriages, people have all kinds of different conceptions, all kinds of different ideas, and they even hold myths. And we've been talking about are you falling out of a, of a myth or are you really falling out of, of love is there's a big difference. And one of the myths that people hold is that my marriage can't be saved. And we've talked about these different myths, but this is one that I want you to kind of look at. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, which is a, is a letter which is written of Jesus, the groom, the bridegroom, to his church, the bride in Ephesus. And he's, he's basically saying, remember what our relationship was like. It's a very interesting word, and I think it can apply very easily to uh, marriages and, and how you can renew, in a sense, and recognize that there is this God who is able I did say there was a myth, and I think it's a true myth, that if, um, and we sometimes say a good relationship only takes, you know, it takes two. There are times one of them can initiate it. But when it comes to this point where you, you know, the thing is just going to fall apart and explode, there is a sense that you can't make someone else do something. But I want to share with you that if two people come together and really um, say, we're going to do something like we heard Mark and Beth share or Davy and Sally last week, miracles can happen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 begins, you have persevered and endured. And some of you may feel that way in a marriage situation. You have persevered. Jesus is going, you persevered and endured. Hardships for my name. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen? Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's really a warning. It's a warning to, I think, couples who are just in an enduring phase. It's a warning to couples who are in a place that, like Beth said, you could take and become ambivalent or you begin to take the anger and try and stop it. You can be in a place where you're so bent on your career that you don't realize what's needed with your spouse. There's all kinds of things that can be going on. You could endure to a point where it's going to collapse. And he says your lampstand, which is really a symbolic sense of the presence of God. There is a sense in a relationship where two people truly come together. There is something special and unique about that, that relationship. And it can begin to evaporate. And in this message to the church at Ephesus, I think there's some great keys, some great opportunity to look at it and go, man, here are some things that maybe I can do that can begin to allow God to work. And actually, this whole myth that my marriage can't be saved could be really turned around. And there is great hope. Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 is interesting. It's not a call merely to persevere, to endure, to get it out for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And some of you are doing exactly that. And some of you may be just hanging on and you're losing your grip and you're feeling like you're going to let go and you're ready to throw in the towel. The idea of this reality that a marriage can be saved is true and the percentages just shoot through the roof when two people take personal responsibility to make that marriage work. And Jesus can... In this situation, look at a potentially dying relationship. That's what was going on. It was a dying relationship. And he says, repent and do the things you did at first. So here are some things that, you know, if we get a chance, I'll get through these points here. And the first is to reignite your passion for one another. Second, when you look at this verse of scripture, it talks about recalling, remembering what your love was once like. 
Third, to reinvest in your relationship. It's that whole idea of repent, that change, and then redo what you once did. And I realize people come from all different places. There are people who are divorced. There's people who have experienced loss and different things like that. And, and sometimes when you do a marriage message like this, your tendency might be to try and run to shame and feel, I'm just encouraging you, don't go there. Just let the Spirit of God work in your heart. The Spirit of God doesn't come and bring shame. There are people that when you feel um, that really stand high-handed before God and they're kind of like, no way, God, am I going to do this? They're shameless, so that this, this, won't even bounce, this will bounce off them. Does that make sense? But allow God to work in your heart. First, reignite your passion for one another. I could refer you to all kinds of books and articles and ideas about striking the match and about setting the flame on fire for one another again. But I can tell you from my counseling, from the Word of God, from what I have observed and seen again and again, a marriage that is at a point where it really needs to be saved needs Jesus. Simply. It needs, it needs this relationship with God that you see in this passage of Scripture because you will need forgiveness. You will need not just a human counselor, although I really encourage that, but you will need the Holy Spirit who is the counselor by the Spirit of God who will begin to come in, give you wisdom and understanding and give you a humble heart to be able to move into the things that you need to move into, to become vulnerable again, to begin to move into those kind of relational kind of uh, uh, abilities to trust, all that stuff needs to take place and all that stuff needs Jesus and Jesus will come and he will begin to with any person who's willing he will if you'll take personal responsibility he will give you his Holy Spirit and he'll begin to work in the character of who you are and he will begin to give you the fruits of the Spirit which make your relationship something that can work he will give you love he will give you joy he will give you peace he will give you patience you know he'll give you goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and add to that self-control all these things as you begin to build your character that can be placed into a relationship whether it's your spouse or even someone at work or somewhere else, that's what God does. He's all about relationships. It's going to sound strange, but God's word, word is really clear. No matter what kind of relationship, no matter how tough it is, you really need God as the foundation. My challenge to you is what's found in verse 4. Jesus says to couples who are in this place, and he's, again, I'm speaking to couples here at this point, you have forsaken your first love. I may be speaking to a person here whose spouse isn't here, and it may be that you need to hear this as well. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who began with an incredible passion to follow him as their personal Lord and Savior. He was their life leader. They came into a relationship with this God. They knew they were far from God. They knew that their sin had separated them from God. They had guilt. They had shame. They had all these things. They needed the forgiveness of God. They couldn't believe that they could have that kind of forgiveness. They had tried to work their way into God's presence. They had tried to do what they could to merit his love and his acceptance. None of that worked until they heard the message that Paul bring. He said, Jesus loved you so much he forgave you. God came and he made himself known to you so that you could invite him into your heart and your life and your life could be changed. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, they remember this word which made them passionately in love with their God. He said, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. It's not what you do so that you can boast about it. It's because of all that God has done. And God wants to do that in your life once again. And they were not only convinced about this incredible passion that God had for them and this incredible love and forgiveness that he had through Jesus Christ, they were also convinced that God could take through them in the relationship they were having and the relationships specifically as we talked today about a spouse, he could come in and make it a beautiful work of art. 
Because in verse 10, as it goes on, he, he makes this statement, for we are God's handiwork. We're his craftsmanship. We're, we're this beautiful poem, this beautiful piece of, 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 of poetry and art and work that was created in Jesus Christ to do the kind of good works and lives of one another, which God had prepared in advance for us. Now think about this. As a result of that kind of deep love and that they had experienced, they were passionate for God and they were passionate for one another. And they would do whatever Jesus asked them to do. They would sacrifice whatever was needed to follow Jesus. So now you've got to go to Acts 19. So follow this road with me. We'll get to this point of this idea of igniting your passion for one another, which really foundationally is about Jesus. Acts 19 is interesting. It's the account of Paul's first visit to them in Ephesus. So now you begin to see the height from which they were fallen in a sense. You begin to look back and see what they first did. It says that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned. And and this is an important little phrase, the way they maligned the way. That's what it was known as. It It wasn't even known so much as Christians. It was about the way, the way of Jesus. And they maligned the way of Jesus. So Paul left them. He left the synagogue and he took the disciples with him and they had discussions daily in a, in a neutral place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And as a result of what God was doing, as a result of the responsiveness of people began to hear this message of God's love, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched by him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And whenever I read that verse of Scripture, I have to make a comment about that because look at those words. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, which always for me begs the question, what's an ordinary miracle? I mean, you know, giving sight to the blind and, and helping the, the deaf hear and, and, and helping the lame walk, that's, I guess, ordinary. But this was extraordinary. It was just, the presence of God was so intangibly present that, that God was kind of got into the clothing in a sense, so that where the clothing went, it, 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 it was the presence of God actually manifesting itself in miraculous ways. Now that's a whole other lesson, but it's true. It's like fragrance. You ever been around someone who has a certain perfume and then all of a sudden you later, about an hour later, you smell it? There's a sense when God's presence is so richly present, His aroma, the sense of His, His presence is so great that even that in fabric is all kind of... So anyway, I will get a whole other message. Here anyway, here. Here's what I want to point out. Verse 9, the way. These people followed Jesus and they were known as people who followed the way. They were people who lived like Jesus lived. They would submit themselves to whatever God called them to do. When the Spirit of God prompted them, they followed, no matter how difficult the sacrifice. Acts 19, 13 through 20 gives you a flavor of it. I'm not going to read it to you, but what was happening is they were so passionately willing to follow Jesus 
It says in Scripture that they openly confess their sins. They are willing to say, here's my selfishness. You know, I've had this unloving behavior towards you. I've carried this offense and I want to make this right. And when Jesus shows up in this kind of way, when you're so passionate, you say, God, I'm not going to carry this any longer in our relationship. I am going to do whatever I can. If, if, if it's become that I've become apathetic or I have anger or I'm somehow in this place, I'm just going to begin to confess this and take responsibility for it. That's what was going on. They love God so much. That's what happens in a marriage when two people come before God and say, God, I'm going to follow your way. And then I love this. It says many who practice sorcery, they were into the occult, brought their scrolls and their artifacts together and publicly burned them. They were basically saying, God, whatever gets in the way of you, whatever gets in the way of another relationship, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to let go of it. Listen to Acts 19.19. 19. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma was equal to one day of work. 50,000 drachmas was 50,000 days of work, which were burning in that pile. I was doing the math on that. One man's daily wage for 137 years. And if you just say the guy made $30,000 a year, over 137 years, that's roughly $4 million that was burning in the pile. Anybody want to throw $4 million in a pile? Anyone is willing to say, you know, I don't, whatever it costs me, I'm following the way of Jesus. I'm going to submit my heart to whatever he calls me to do. So I want the power of God in my life. I want to become a loving person like Jesus. I want to be that kind of spouse. I want to be that kind of person at work. I want to be that kind of person that when, when they see me, they begin to experience the presence of God. Well, they were passionate for God and whatever it meant, whatever he prompted them to do, whether it's confess or to forgive or to take personal responsibility for selfish behavior, if it meant that they were going to really work on their character. Do you know trials come in your life often because God's really breaking down your character where it has been formed off from him? Not all. But trials can be a wonderful opportunity to say that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Even this trial, God, that you've allowed to have happened. Peter could have said, you've asked to sift me like wheat. Um, Go ahead, sift me because I want to be more like you. And so they said, I'll keep my promises. I made a commitment. Remove whatever would get in the way of my relationship with you, God, in any healthy relationship with another person. Whatever you ask me to do, I will follow the way of Jesus. And that was your passion. You say, God, I'll do it. Now, follow with me, if you would, to Ephesians into the letter. Because Paul had spent two years there and then he left and he was always in contact with these people and the church that he was in contact with. So he was writing to them and he writes these beautiful things in Ephesians, the first three chapters. And then he gets into the fourth chapter, starts telling how the church works. And then he gets, you know, more practical in the fifth or so chapter and he starts giving household instructions. And what I think is really sad is so often in some of your versions in the Bible, what you have is these little notations, you have little headings, and these little headings are placed in places that I think sometimes are very inappropriate. In fact, as you go through the whole instructions to the household, to husbands and wives, and then to slaves, and, and he goes through it, you'll find that one of the headings that they have is right before, right after verse 21. 
And then it goes right into this thing. Wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands. And if you read verse 21, Paul is really saying when the kingdom of God comes, it shows up in such a way that it's not about you submitting and you taking leadership. It's about your two hearts submitting to Jesus Christ and to his way. And when you do this, he begins to work through you in amazing ways. So verse 21 begins, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You got to put that first. And now you have to understand, go, you can look at Ephesians chapter 6 and he's talked to slaves. And for years what people said, you see, the Bible says you're supposed to be slaves, you know, because slaves obey your masters. And then go back and you say, well, wives, submit to your husbands. You know what was happening in that culture in that day? The, the freedom that was coming through the gospel was setting people free. They were beginning to understand that a relationship was between themselves and God. And what was happening is that if you came in and you just set slaves free and you just said, wives, you know, in this culture where there was, as we talked about last week, this power struggle and said, you just liberated, do whatever you want. It would destroy all the fabric of the culture. So God comes in and begins to work in the culture. And the first thing he says is submit to one another. That's what kingdom kind of life is. And then he says to some wives, he says, some of you wives, you need to understand that because of where you're at and the freedom you have in Christ, you're still called to bend your, your knee and your heart to your husband. It doesn't mean you go out and do whatever you want. But here's the thing I want you to hear, guys. It says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here's what he did to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, which is this life work of taking this person that you love and allowing this person you love to become vulnerable so that where there is folds of sin, where there are folds of fear, where there are wrinkles and stains from past hurts, that you, by the love of God through you, begin to start helping through God himself, begin to kind of take those stains out. And the word of God, with your own love, begins to make this person radiant. So I, I, I want to share with you, because this is so incredibly important, that this first command is mutual submission and marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can share with you, I know there's different opinions on this, but I can share with you in my own marriage and many of the other friends that I have who are also in, as pastors in leadership, I, I've asked this question. You, how many times have you come where you go, I'm the guy, I'm making the decision? I can tell you in mine, that's, I've never had that happen. There has been this mutual submission and understanding. And there are times where I submit and I go, you know, and I, I have to tell you, there's times I've said when we were raising the kids, I don't agree. I don't get it. But you know what? I trust you in this better than my own. And I am so grateful this day that I have. And there are times my wife will look and go, you know what? You have in this one. I, I need to submit because we're submitting to the Lord. Together. And here's what Paul's point is around this whole question of leadership. And I, I touched on it last week when we were talking about conflict is fruitful through spiritual initiative. I want to get this across because this is what I think Paul is basically saying. He is not saying wives are to submit to your husbands so they can make the decisions. He's calling for mutual submission to Jesus. Here's the key to the whole passage of Scripture. And here's what I think is key to a healthy, growing marriage. Leadership is not about making the decision. But it's about you, and I'll say to men, it's about you, men, as I said last week, bending your knee to be the first one to bend your knee before the Lord and say, Lord, what is your way in this? 
It is for you, the first one, to say, Lord, I'm coming before you. I ask for your wisdom because I want so much to love my wife and my family. I want so much to be what you want in here. So much so that you will, like Jesus, be willing to sacrifice what it might take in order to love in that way. That you might be in a garden, that you might even sweat blood and say, Father, not my will, but your will be done in this matter. Now, isn't that the kind of spiritual initiative that God is calling people to? Can you imagine when people do that in a marriage relationship together? You don't think God's going to show up? He will. And so when I counsel a couple, I have all the confidence in the world that he can save any couple who are open and willing and humble enough to passionately say, I'm following Jesus in his way. And whenever it comes to anything in our life, in our marriage, with our family and everything, I'm going to be the first to bend my knee to Jesus. And as you begin to do that, I can promise you he will begin to reignite your passion towards one another. There's a second thing that um, I will just touch on here. Revelation 2.5, recall what, you, the love you once, that what your love was once like. It says, remember the height from which you were fallen. And I, I think about this. I asked a few weeks ago, we asked you know, people to send in their stories of, of your first love kind of stuff when you did crazy things and no one sent anything in. So I guess there's no crazy stories of love out here. But I remember driving from Chicago to Thief River Falls, Minnesota, roughly a 14 plus hour drive. I did it in, in less than 12 hours. I hope there's no police in here. But anyway, um, and I did it with one stop for gas. And to go to the bathroom. And Grace was here first hour, and I told her I'd do it again. Anyway, um, remembering is powerful. One of the reasons we monthly stop and we, we focus on what Jesus did through communion on the cross is to begin to reignite our emotions and our understanding of the deep grace and love and commitment that God has towards us. I had a couple after the first service come up to me and go, you know what I do? She said, every time I get to this place, because you know what happens? We get these emotions and I get these, like, I, I pull this box up. I've saved every card that my husband has sent me. And I go back and I start reading, especially some of the first years. And I, I just go, man, that's who he is. It's kind of like Bethlehem. That's what I saw. There's something powerful about recalling. And then when you begin to recall the word emotion, sometimes people have used the word that's energy plus motion. That when you begin sometimes, because you, you can do it on commitment of the truth, but it, it's really powerful when you begin to get your emotions engaged in it. And if you've been burnt and hurt, it's going to take time. I talk to some couples, you know what, you need to guys or, you know, you may need to give space. Sometimes with some wives, they just their emotions are so... So hurt. That's a, that's a whole other thing. But, you know, emotions, when you begin to get your emotions to recall, remember, you then have the energy to reinvest. And that's what he says here. He says in, in chapter two, verse five, repent and do the things you first did. The idea of repenting is not to get all sad. It's not all, you know, I'm just really sad. We think it's an emotional response. It really isn't an emotional response. The word in, in the Greek is meta which means to think again. It's really the idea to think after. It's, it's the kind of thinking that when you look at it, you go, what are the strategies that I'm using right now in this situation that aren't working? And as you begin to do that, you begin to start to see what those strategies are and you begin to understand that. And sometimes when you see the pain, the hurt or the things that have caused, it creates a sense of grief and pain and sadness. 
But the whole word demeans a personal commitment to change so that when you begin to start saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow your way. Jesus, I'm going to recall and remember what it was like. And Jesus, I'm going to reinvest. There's no way this whole series has been about how are you investing in your relationship? And then last, let me just share with you this last idea to redo what you once did. Uh, this, I'm going to get real practical here because here's what happens in almost every relationship. There's a guy named John Gottman who is a um, he's a scientist and he also does all kinds of stuff around marriage. And, it, and he's, he's more scientific in his approach. He actually studies and, and through labs and through longitudinal studies, he looks at couples and then he makes from that di- you know, sense of getting the data and then makes conclusions rather than kind of intuition saying this is what it is. So he comes from that approach and he writes a number of books. And one of them he writes is called The Science of Trust. And he talks about this, that he's found that in relationships, they either move into one or two places. They either move into what is called negative sentimental override or they move into positive sentiment override and that means that what happens is as the relationship goes on you move into this kind of place where the negatives begin to move into an overriding position versus what's positively going on he writes this and in negative sentiment override the negative thoughts and feelings we have about a relationship and our partner override anything our partner might do we're hyper vigilant for put downs We tend not to note of positive events. And I have to share that you've been wounded or hurt deeply in your past. Often what will happen is the trust factor, it will show up sometimes in your future relationship. And so he says what happens is Robinson and Price in their study discovered, catch this, that unhappy couples don't see 50% of the positive things that objective outside observers see. Isn't that interesting? 50% don't see the positive that is really there. We tend to distort and see the neutral or sometimes even the positive things as negative. And this can happen in marriages. It can also happen in relationships with parents. It can happen with kids. It can happen with people you work with. Now, the other side is positive sentiment override. And it's just the opposite. And this happens especially with couples in their first years of marriage. We don't take negativity personally. We see it merely as evidence that they're a partner. Oh, they're just stressed or they're tired, right? And we tend to distort toward the positive and see even the negative is neutral. We're not really overly sensitive at that point. Now, he makes this point, and this is critical, I think, because it really ties back to the Word of God. People are in negative sentiment override for a very good reason. You know why? The friendship isn't working. He goes, he goes on to say, we believe all counseling techniques, all these other stuff won't work unless the fundamental friendship processes are working. If friendship is working, you will begin to move toward positive sentiment override. And research that has attempted to simply move people from the negative to the positive has failed. We think that's because you can't change it except by altering the quality of the friendship. So it makes really a lot of sense that when we read in Romans that when we were sinners, in fact, it says, for if when we were actually enemies to God... Jesus took the first step and offered forgiveness and entered back into reconciliation, which means a relationship, which is a friendship. So that we could begin to move towards one another. And every relationship has these characteristics and friendships. There's three things, and I'm not going to get into them, but it's, you need to be tuned in and aware to the person. 
You have to be tuned in and aware of what's going on in their life. You have to ask the questions. You have to remember what they've said. You have to know what their hopes and dreams are. You have to be engaged. You have to be tuned in and aware. Friends do that. The next thing is you need to have time and attention. You have to actually spend time. You have to invest time. Everything that is good over time will eventually disintegrate. But that which has been given time and attention and is cultivated will grow. And friendships do that. And the last is this, thanks and admiration. It involves a habit of constantly, daily scanning your relationship for things to admire, things to um, be proud of in your partner, the opportunity to say to your partner verbally, I really appreciate this, because the tendency for all of us, what we're prone to doing is moving to what is, what is not good, the mistake, and looking at what seems to be negative and calling that out. Did you know that one put down will erase 20 acts of kindness? That's how important this is. One put down can undo hours of kindness. If you think of it this way, you can exercise 20 minutes to work off the calories of a candy bar. Guess how many minutes it takes to eat a candy bar? About one. And there's all kinds of proverbs that speak of the power of the word. And so this last thing that he talks about, and that's what I think counseling helps begin to do, and that's one of the things that happens when you really get real with God and and you begin to start saying, I'm going to invest in this, is you begin to invest back to what you first did. And what you first did was you were really friends. I know there's a lot of romantic stuff around it, but what was it had all the elements of being tuned in and aware. It had the elements of being giving time and attention. Face it, how many people, when you were first in love, gave lots of time and attention? And then you were always being thankful and admiring, right? And it begins to cultivate the kind of thing when people say, I'm going to do it your way, God. I'm going to continue to recall what was good. And God, I'm going to continue to reinvest. And so I'm going to allow you to do the things you first did and build the friendship that needs to be there. I'm going to ask Nate if he'd come. We're going to close the service. I'm going to ask you just to, would you just take this song? It's a beautiful song. And prayerfully just give your heart in in your mind. You don't have to sing it, but just pray it before the Lord. If this is a place that you're in, um, he hears the prayer of your heart.